If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in between books. We're about to start Hebrews, uh, but the Lord's directed my heart in another place this morning. I love it when he interrupts what we're doing and he changes things up. And with this passage, um, it represents that because he's been leaning heavily on my heart related to this passage and so thankful to be able to study this together this morning as a family. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, who do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man 
who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have, not, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans in that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for another opportunity to worship you in the study of your word. We do want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you that your word will outlive the heavens and the earth, and we have the privilege of being able to build our lives upon uh, the majesty of it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Lord, that you would say to us anything that you want to say to us, Lord. We are yielded over to you. We have yielded hearts before you, Lord. Bless your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I sensed a leading by the Lord to just pause for for a little bit and kind of have a a self-evaluation. You ever done that? Especially the new year. This is the new year. And sometimes when you're starting a new year, this is the season where you make resolutions and and you look at your life. And that is a very healthy thing to do. But I also think that it's very healthy to do that collectively as a family, as a spiritual family, to be able to ask ourselves, where are we? Uh, Where are we going? What is it that the Lord wants to use us in as a group, as a collective body? And so he's directed my heart, uh, as he often does, to this passage. This this passage is, is an old friend of mine. This is actually the first passage we ever studied as a church on June 15, 2008, and it's, it's almost like he's bringing us back to where we began in some ways. And that's a healthy thing because we can forget the place from which we came. We can lose sight of vision and, and his clear, distinct direction uh, in, in our lives as a body. And, and so it's important for us to recognize, first of all, that when he speaks to us, we need to listen. He is overseeing this church. The leadership tries to get out of his way. People ask me, how's the church going? Well, it's going great, trying to not help him out and trying to not get in his way. Just let him do what he wants to do because it's his church. And I'm very mindful, and so are the leaders, and so are many of you, that Jesus is assessing our church. You remember in the book of Revelation, he writes seven letters to seven churches. And we're going to get there in, in in the coming months and years. I don't know how long it'll take us to get there, but probably pretty soon because Besides Hebrews, they don't have a whole lot of longer books to go until we get to Revelation. But I'm very mindful that he is watching everything that happens among us. And he watches us individually, of course, but he watches us collectively as well. 
He sees us both as individuals and as a collective family. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's important for us to remember that he's watching us. And he, is, he has opinions. <laughs> he has perspectives. He has an assessment related to what we're about as a fellowship. Our aim is to be a biblical fellowship. Have Acts 2.42 be the foundation for what we, you know, everything that we do. And also Ephesians 4 to be the equipping place uh, that he's called us to be so that we can fulfill our mission. Our mission is Matthew 28. To go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, and, and to teach others to obey all the things that he has commanded the original disciples. So this is a disciple-making place. This isn't a place supremely for us to reach out to seekers, although it's very important that the gospel is preached. The, and this is what's getting confused in the church culture. The purpose of here is to make disciples, which means that we have to hear things that we may not want to hear at times by the word of God. It means that we're stretched. It means that we're allowing God to, to, to speak into our lives anything that he wants to speak to us about so we can become further Christ-like or to be made further into the image of Christ. So it's very important that we are listening and we are surrendered and yielded to what he wants to say to each one of our lives. And so this passage with this woman is very instructive to where uh, he's leading our fellowship and where he's already led our fellowship. What's interesting about this passage and this, the Lord Jesus with this woman at the well is that this woman at the well perfectly describes or paints a portrait of how this world is. And the Lord Jesus, in his encounter with this woman, perfectly paints a picture of how he's calling us to reach this world. I don't know if you've ever looked at it from that vantage point. I never had uh, up until recently. And I started studying it and looking at it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at both the woman at the well and the Lord Jesus and take her first and go through different characteristics that we can learn from her and how she is and recognize that that's how the, the world is. And we have to be sensitive to that. If we're ever going to reach this world and we're ever going to make a difference as a body, we have to understand the culture. We have to understand where people are at and we have to, to, to know kind of what to expect when we're out there in the highways and byways and, and reaching people. Because we're going to be having a lot of things come, come uh, forth in this coming years. A lot of vision, a lot of things we've been praying about. It's about to, you know, as Chris Searle would say, you know, our youth pastor, he'd say it's about to be on. It's on. You know, it's coming. And so we need to be ready. We need to have our hearts ready. And I think one of the most important ways to do that is understand the Lord Jesus' heart for the lost. So I want to start with the woman at the well. We won't be covering all the verses in this passage uh, that we've done that before. And, but I'm just going to be highlighting some verses related to uh, describing some characteristics of her and the Lord Jesus. So let's begin the first characteristic that we see in this woman uh, that's like the world and that, in that is she is alone. It's obvious, right? Look at verse 6. It says, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, you might miss it if, uh, if you don't look carefully, but when it says it's the sixth hour, remember, Jesus said that every jot and tittle, every word, every part of every word is, is inspired by God and is important and will not pass away. So it, the Holy Spirit inspired John the Apostle to write the end of verse 6, the last 
uh, six words there. It was about the sixth hour. That's important. That tells us something. That means that it's noontime. I love noontime. It's the time I get to eat usually. And I, that's just how I am. And, and uh, food is really dear to me, unfortunately, probably too much. But here it is, noontime, the sixth hour is noon because the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. That's their, their day began at 6 a.m. And so the sixth hour would be 12 noon. And that doesn't immediately tell us anything significant. But if we consider uh, uh, things a little bit further, we'll understand it. In that culture, you never went out in the heat of the day to gather to get water. I wasn't going to say fetch water. Uh, maybe I've been watching Little House in the Prairie too much. But, uh, you know, we don't go fetch water in the heat of the day. Nobody did that, especially in that culture. Now, we'll get into why she was there at noon, potentially in a, in a moment. But I just want to focus just on the simple fact that this woman was alone. There may have been... Uh, you know, she may have been around other people at different times, but at this place, she's not around people. She's alone. And, and we think of today, we, well, there's not a lot of people that are necessarily by themselves, but they're lonely. You ever know people that are really popular, but they say they're lonely? Or let me just personalize it a little bit. You ever been in a crowded room and you felt very alone? Let me see a show of hands. I'm one of them. I've been in a very crowded room. And felt very alone. Loneliness has nothing to do with being in the physical presence of some, someone. It has to do with having a connection with someone. And a beautiful thing about the Christian life is that God calls us to a beautiful connection with him, first of all. But also with others. And, and we value the body of Christ very much. But the people of this world are lonely people. No matter if they say that they are, no matter if they look like they are, they're lonely people because God's created them to have the kind of relationship that we have, which is a spiritual relationship. And they can't have a spiritual relationship with people because they're spiritually dead, the Bible says. So they are lonely people and, and it's a ve- this world's a very lonely place. There are people out there that are kind of eaten up by people and chewed up and spit out and, and they've never... They've never had meaningful relationships. They may look like it on the outside, but they have never had meaningful relationship. Many people have never developed any kind of people skills or interpersonal uh, you know, relationships that are, that are meaningful in their lives. They don't have the, con- the confidence to have a relationship with someone that's, that's meaningful. They don't have any confidence they could ever get a job or, or have these types of relationships that they're longing for. And they may say everything's great on the outside. Most people, though, that you're reaching out to, they don't have that confidence. They will readily admit that they don't have a lot of relationships. So that is, that is just a very small snapshot of how bad this world is. There are people out there right now, they're thinking, there's no hope for me. I can't have any normal relationship because I've failed so many times and I'm, and I'm alone. And it doesn't even touch on the greatest loneliness of all, being disconnected from God. Because God, they're, they're, those people are, they have the, lo- the God loneliness or they have a loneliness related to having a, a, a relationship with God. And, and they may even think that they have that type of relationship. But of course, biblically, we know that they don't. They have no idea what they're even missing. 
They can't even long for what they don't even comprehend. That's how bad their situation is. Second characteristic of this woman, which is like the world, is that she's been rejected. It's important for us to see that. That gets into the why of why she's at this place at noontime in the heat of the day when no one else is there. She was either so ashamed of her lifestyle that she didn't want to face anybody, or she had been told by other people, you don't come here now. You come here at other times when we're not here. We're not told exactly why. But you just don't go to a well in the heat of the day for no reason. She couldn't come at that, the normal time. And, and we can't minimize the pain of that. That she's just by herself. She's been ostracized or rejected, potentially maybe for her lifestyle that we're, we're aware of. We don't know. The Samaritans weren't overtly, you know, uh, righteous people, you know, in, in that culture. But still, there could have been a stigma uh, associated with her lifestyle of having multiple husbands and so forth. So this world is just like her. This world's been rejected. They reject people all the time, and they're rejected by people all the time. They've maybe re- been rejected by family. You know, the, the most deepful or the deep, hurtful, deepful, the most deep, hurtful things that go on in a life is being rejected by the people that you care about the most. But so often people are rejected by their family. They've done things that have been hurtful to other people. They've, you know, uh, burned every bridge. They've exhausted every favor. They've pushed every button. They've taken every chance that people have given them. And they've violated trust over and over and over again. How many people have here have had, or had, currently have family or someone that have burned those bridges with you and hurt you so many times that it's just too painful for you to handle? Or think about, raise your hand, some here. So they're on the receiving end of that. Our compassion can't be limited by what they deserve or what they don't deserve. Or what they have coming to them. Or what they don't have coming to them. Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. He didn't give conditions. And, and some of us that have gone through, you know, a rough upbringing and we didn't have discipline and so forth. And we finally have discipline and we're working hard and God's blessing us and all these things. We can have a lack of compassion for people that don't deserve to be well off in this world because they haven't been responsible. They've made mistakes. God doesn't look at people like that. He doesn't say, well, you know, you've kind of made your bed. You've got to lie in it. He is merciful and compassionate, even with people who, quote unquote, have, have made their bed. He, he, he wants them out of their bed. <laughs> you know, he wants them helping other people and caring for other people. So there's people that have been absolutely rejected, broken people, lost, hopeless, not knowing where to turn. They may say to us when we talk to them, everything's fine. But in reality, they know the truth. When they are by themselves, they know the reality of their situation. They may be medicating those pains and those hurts by drugs and alcohol and other vices and so forth to try to dull that pain. But that pain pushes itself up to the surface. That pain comes up to their consciousness and their emotions and their, and, and their mind. And they weep. And they weep some more. And they sob. And they finally just think that this is just how life can be that's how hopeless people are out there and God's called us to do something about it by his grace by his leading by his power but he's called us to make a difference in people's lives third characteristic of this woman which is like the world is that she's preoccupied with the physical versus the spiritual look at verse 11 
says there, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now look down to verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Here Jesus is speaking of spiritual water and she's focused on physical water. And he keeps revealing who he is to her and giving revelation little by little, so patient in this account. He's taking his time with him. He's not rushing this whole process. He's giving further revelation here. It's a beautiful thing. She eventually gets it, but not at first. And he's patient with her. That's how the world is. The world is preoccupied with the physical. They can't see through the tree. They can't see the forest through the trees, so to speak, as we say, but from a spiritual standpoint. But that's all that they're about. The physical, the physical, the physical. Oh, they talk spiritual really well. They can say a lot of things that make them sound like they're very spiritual, but their entire lives are centered on the physical. They're living on the physical plane. In many ways, or in some ways, I mean, we're different, obviously, from the animals. We're, the, the Bible doesn't call us an animal. <laughs> the Bible calls us distinct from the animals. Animals live completely on a, on a physical plane. And without that spiritual dynamic, we're not living any higher than an animal. And, and that's how <laughs> this world functions. And so we need to know that when we're sharing thing, when we're sharing the truth with them, when we're, when we're attempting to be an extension of God in their life. In other words, be his representative, his ambassador to them. We need to know that it's very difficult for them to perceive things spiritually. They really can't in many ways. The first message that God brings to people is the gospel. He takes his Holy Spirit and he illuminates that message to their hearts and says, this is the truth. But he's not giving them all kinds of instruction related to spiritual things. That's not what we see in Scripture. He's having them start first things first with the gospel. So when we're sharing the gospel, we have to recognize that people will be so focused and consumed with the physical, it's going to be hard for them to get their eyes on spiritual things. But just like with the Lord Jesus, as we are led by the Spirit and we're revealing truth to them, coupled with the Spirit overseeing that situation, then more revelation will be received by them until they receive the gospel. So I love Jesus's patience and I love his, his, his uh, way that he ministered to her, even though she didn't get it so often. And you know, the, what gives us hope too is that the disciples weren't exactly spiritual heavyweights either. <laughs> you know, they don't understand what, what, what's going on right there either. But, so there's a process. We as believers and as disciples, we're growing in our, in our spiritual, uh, uh, you know, the, our capacity to understand what's going on in a certain situation. He wants us to be focused on the spiritual aspect of any given circumstance that we're in first before we're focused on the physical. When we walk into the room, we're bringing the kingdom of God with us into that room. We're the one that God is speaking to. We're the one that God is leading to to affect the situation for God's purposes. And when we see the spiritual and what's going on behind the scenes and being tuned into the spirit, then that's how we're the most effective for God in helping uh, accomplish what he wants uh, to accomplish in a given situation. Very important for us to know. The fourth characteristic, and there'll be a thousand more, don't worry about it. The fourth characteristic of the woman, which is like the world, is that she tried very hard to find happiness and fulfillment on her own. Look at verse 16. 
Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. This woman tried to find fulfillment in relationships. She tried very hard, too. She was very persistent. Women, how many of you would have lasted that, that many times trying to... You'd, she had finally given up. She wasn't married now, but she had, had already had five husbands. And dealing with us men, you know, to think about her lasting that, many, that long and giving, you know, holding out hope, maybe this one will be the guy that will meet all my needs and will actually be faithful to me no matter what the circumstances. But her hope was completely, uh, you know, obliterated every single time. And I'm sure every single time that hope just was eroded just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And now she's like, I don't need the aggravation. And, and it doesn't have to be relationships, Although it is in many ways in this world. People are trying so hard to find that peace and fulfillment and that joy that, that only God can provide through relationships. But it could, have been, it could be through substance abuse. It could be through you know, a, a lust for power or money or achievement. There are many wealthy, affluent people that are just as uh, frustrated by their... their you know, attempt to get peace and fulfillment in life through accomplishment and wealth that then there are just as much as with these with this type of situation here. So we have to know that if we're going to reach the lost, if we're going to be engaged in outreach and, and being about what the Lord's about in this world, seeking and saving the lost, we have to recognize that people are going to be very frustrated with their situation. And they're going to have tried many things over and over and over again. That, in part, is why they're, they're ready to be harvested, as Jesus said, because they've tried so many things. And it doesn't matter what we perceive when we're talking with them. We have to know that, that they really are frustrated, or they will be in the future. They're on their way to being frustrated. And the word of God that we sow into their hearts and in their minds is going to come back to them, and it's not going to return void. So this whole big world out there are, 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 try, are trying everything to bring fulfillment. And that's why we have to be there with the right answer. At the right moment, right timing, right motive, being prayed up. We need to be there at the right time with the right answer. Because they are discouraged, many of them. And they don't know where to turn. And they don't know what the solution is. And we have it. We have the solution. We have the answer. We just have to be able to be, get exposure to them to be able to share that with them. And God knows that we have everything that we need. And we think of our you know, evangelism. We think our, you know, of our sharing of our faith. And we think, well, I have to be so eloquent and know how to just preach the gospel like Billy Graham and, or Greg Laurie. And nothing could be further from the truth. He just wants us to be there just to be there and to be a mouthpiece for him, to say anything. And he'll multiply that and use that for his purposes. But we have to be there and we have to recognize they're very, very unfulfilled. The fifth characteristic of this woman, which is like the world, is that she's religious. Look at verse 20. She says, this is her own testimony here in verse 20. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Samaritans were very, very religious. The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And uh, I think it was 729 B.C., somewhere in there. And the Syrians would often do this. They would come and they'd conquer a people and they'd displace those people, bring them back to another country. And then they would take people from their country and put them in that area. And, and what would happen over time, and it was very effective, the people would lose their national identity. And thus it would reduce the risk of insurrection and rebellion. And so the, the Jews that you know, left to go to, to where the Syrians were from, and then the Syrians brought people there, and then they obviously, uh, you know, had uh, expansion of their families there, and the, 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 the races mixed and so forth, and, they had, and so these people were looked down upon by the Jews. They had this long-standing animosity, but the, the, the Samaritans had the Pentateuch. They had the first five books of the Old Testament, and that's, what, that's all they believed, and that's what they held to. So they were very religious, but they also were very prideful because that was their identity. Their area in Samaria, that place where they had a mountain there, and that was their place of worship, and that's what she's getting into here with the Lord Jesus. And they reinterpreted a lot of Old Testament history through their, the, the prism of, of their background and their culture. So they believed a lot of the things that happened on other, in other places in Israel actually happened in Samaria, and she was and they were incorrect related to that. But she was very religious there. And that's how people are in this world. It's not, you won't come into contact with all that many sincere atheists that really say there is no God. Usually people are somewhat religious. They will say, I believe in God. And what cracks me up is they they, they think it's some big accomplishment to, to, to believe in God. When God says in his word, he just stamps that within them, and they know that there's a God based on creation. And so, but they, they usually don't say they're atheists. They usually they say, well, we're, you know, I believe there's a God, or they say we're not sure. They may be agnostic. You know, agnostics are those that are people that are professionally, you know, not knowing anything for sure. You know, so that's their, that's their, their, their banner there. Uh, but we were the same way in many ways, so we can't be prideful about that. But they are very religious. And what this teaches us here is obviously religion is not the answer. She was, I mean, if religion was the answer, she wouldn't have been looking for all these husbands. She would have been fulfilled. She wouldn't have been the needy person that she was. So religion doesn't do it. People, you start sharing your faith with them and you start talking about the Lord and, oh, I've tried religion, I've tried, you know. Yes, you've tried religion, but you haven't had a personal relationship with Christ because once that happens, you stop thirsting. It's that living water that comes forth from us and you start enjoying that beautiful relationship and you don't thirst anymore. You stop searching. If you're searching, you haven't found him. Because you can't exhaust who he is and the benefits uh, of his wonderful nature. And so we have to recognize we can't be thrown off by that. Because when you're sharing your faith with somebody and they say, oh, I pray or I go to church, sometimes we will say, oh, oh okay, hands off, you know, you're, you're fine. Because you think you're going to heaven and you go to church and you pray and you believe in God, that that, that, that guarantees that you're born again and it doesn't. It requires us, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, to ask some questions, tactfully, of course, lovingly, 
I wasn't too loving and I wasn't too tactful back in my early days as a Christian. But you have to do that. And as you start asking questions, you start seeing what they're really trusting in. They're usually trusting in their own performance. Or they're, because that's what man-made religion is all about, our man-made righteousness that somehow earns me a right standing with God. Or even without being religious, I'm just a good person. But if we just accept that, oh, they're religious, they believe in God, and they go to church, and now they're okay, and I don't have to preach the gospel to them, then we're going to miss it. And so we have to be very careful, and instead of uh, maybe uh, using a machete, we have to use a, a scalpel and get in there and use precision to find out exactly what's the problem there and, and to, to, to get a proper assessment of their spiritual condition. The sixth uh, characteristic of this woman, which is like the world, is that she's receptive. Look at verse 28. After Jesus reveals his identity, we're told this in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She was receptive of the truth. And how many of us, if we would have seen her sitting by that well or going to that well, and we understood the implications of why she was there in the, at noontime in the heat, and, and we, we saw her, her disposition and her, how she was while she was there, how many of us would think that, that, that if, if God you know, came and, and presented the truth to her, that she would receive it? Not many of us would probably have that assessment or have that prediction. You see, we always prejudge, many of us, we prejudge whether or not someone's going to be receptive or not. And, and why are we surprised when they are receptive? And the reason is because we don't believe Jesus' assessment of the harvest field. He said that the harvest field is ready for harvest. And so we have to trust what he said instead of what our eyes are telling us or what we're sensing. There's people that would never dream in a million years that I would have gotten saved in 1990 when I did. Nobody would have predicted that. Everyone was shocked. Even the people inviting me to church was uh, totally floored. Couldn't believe it. And so God's patient with us and he's gracious, but recognize that the harvest is ready. That's why we shouldn't be surprised. We should actually, when someone is receptive, we should, we should that shouldn't surprise us. We should, that's, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus said. But we're successful whether they're receptive or not. We are called to plant seeds and water, and, and God brings the, the growth and so forth. We're just responsible for preaching the gospel in a spirit-directed way. The mailman does not fret, or male person, excuse me, I want to be correct now. Male person uh, isn't worried or not, or not whether or not I'm going to pay my bills or not, or if I'm going to like the mail that they bring. The mailman just comes and says, this is my job. This is what I'm told to do. And so I'm going to come in here. I'm going to deliver this mail. And what you do with it is up to you. That's a good picture, isn't it? God's called us to just deliver the message. And whether they look like the Tasmanian devil and Bugs Bunny, you know, and they're just imploding, going crazy, and all these things that we think in our minds is going to happen, I remember when I used to go door to door with a group sharing the gospel. And you just, it's so hard. It's so hard to do that. And, and we usually came back every week with great stories. People getting saved, people thanking us for coming, people inviting us and giving us a meal. Of course, you know me, I'm going to be all for that. You know, great, wonderful. Wow, this is better than I 
I'm eating right now as a single bachelor for sure. Uh, and, and you just have all these great stories and you come back and share. And then the next week, is, it, it's as if that never happened. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh gosh, please don't kill us on the doorstep and, you know, beat us up and all. And, and it doesn't matter how long, how many weeks we did that. Every single week, it's like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to mankind, what I'm about to engage in. And that's what we think. But listen to what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 9. Verses 36 through 38. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's his harvest field. And he knows that it's ripe. I mean, what farmer doesn't know his own field? <laughs> so we're telling him, you don't, know your own, you don't know your own field. You don't know if it's ripe or not. It's my field. I know if it's, I know if it's, <laughs> if it's ripe for harvest. And so we can't prejudge people. We need to go and say, I'm going to deliver the mail. And I'm going to deliver the message because we don't make the gospel more powerful in how we present it. It's powerful all by itself. The gospel itself is the power of God into salvation. Not how we pre- it doesn't say how you present the gospel is the power of God into salvation to all those who believe. He says the gospel itself. We just need to preach the gospel and then leave the results to God and then we were uh, then we'll be at peace with the Lord with, with that. So now we switch to the Lord Jesus and I just have three of them. The first characteristic of Jesus which we are to emulate, is his urgency to reach people. I want you to look back at verses 3 and 4, okay? Chapter 4, let's go back to verse 3. Verses 3 and 4, he says, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Look at the next verse. But he needed to go through Samaria. It's very important that we see that. When you go from the south in Judea and you go to the Galilee in the north, they, the Jews would never go through Samaria because they hated them. They'd go around. They'd go around usually the eastern route up to the Galilee there, right by Jericho and so forth, and they'd go up to the Galilee. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Again, not one verse is by accident. And this is passed over quite a bit. I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever seen that he needed to go through Samaria here. It's very easy to miss, but he needed to go that way. And, and John, by the Holy Spirit, makes sure that we see that. And, and, and so they wanted nothing to do with, with, with the Samaritans, but Jesus did. He, need, he knew that there, there would be a woman there who needed saving and a whole community uh, of people that needed the gospel. And so the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus' heart for the lost uh, in verse 4. He needed That's the most important word, needed. This is Jesus' heart. When we see the multitudes, do we see them as as sheep without a shepherd? Do we see them as the lost people that they are? Do we care? It's it's searching for all of us because we, we, we need to take care of our own life and our own business but not to the point to where we neglect being available and ready to preach the gospel and reach out to people. That's what he's leading our church to go further into, is to to reach the lost and to reach people that are hurting. That's Jesus' heart. 
And he's trying to get his disciples, both then and now, to have that heart. And it's an ongoing battle. We don't graduate and then go on cruise control and never have to worry about it ever again. He brings us back to it over and over again because we can be uh, self-focused, just like Pastor Bob taught last week. We can be self-focused instead of God-focused and focused on other people. A certain characteristic of Jesus, which we are to emulate, is that he approaches her appropriately. I love that he doesn't just start lecturing her with some monologue, as, and that would be a great monologue. None of us would say that that, that wouldn't be effective. But he, he slowly approaches her appropriately how she needed him to approach her. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he needed to do it revealing his identity in a very gradual way. He approaches her as a person, which we need to do. He approaches her asking questions, which is an approach that he can lead us to do, just by asking people what their situation is. We think related to preaching the gospel that we just have to know what to say, and we're going to go on a 20-minute thing, and they're not going to say a word, and then they're going to bow their head and pray with us. (laughs) There has to be an exchange. We have to talk with people, not at people. It's a very important distinction. So he asks questions and he, and he probes and he, he has this give and take with her and it's a beautiful thing. He uses one of the gifts of the Spirit, the word of knowledge. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. Again, she's impressed with this obvious thing that she is, that she is ascertained there. And, and so he, he ministers to her exactly, or to her exactly how she should be ministered to. And then also he tells her the truth, the truth about herself, the truth about him. He tells her the truth about worship. And the nature of worship, that, it, that God is seeking worship and that God, it should be, uh, you know, the, the kind of worship that's based, that's biblical, that's not erroneous in its nature, but also spiritual and not physical supremely. And he also, of course, tells him the truth about himself. He reveals who he is. He doesn't reveal himself like this really to anybody else in the New Testament. And it's a beautiful picture. So he deals with her appropriately. And that's what God's called us to do as well. It's so easy to have a one-size-fits-all evangelism. This is what I do. I have this system. I do this, then I do this, then I do this, and I do this. And then when I'm done with that number six, then I'm saying, okay, I'm done. But Jesus never does the same thing the same way. Didn't heal that way. Didn't teach that way. It's always different. And so because the people that need saving are diverse, the ways in which we reach them can be very diverse. And we can criticize certain methods because they're not our, you know, preference and so forth, but there are different ways to reach people. And he just wants us to be available and be sensitive to that. The third characteristic and final characteristic I want to cover, the way that the Lord Jesus is and how we should emulate it, is that he understands, again, that the harvest is ripe. Look with me at verse 35 all the way down to 35 in chapter 4. We touched on this, but he covers it again uh, in this chapter. He says, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. His passion is that the lost would be reached. He wants to seek and save those that are lost. He's, He's very much wanting those people to be reached and he says they are ready to be harvested now the samaritans traditionally and even today there's a very small number of them but even today they wear these white robes and so it's likely that at the same time he says this to the to the disciples that the samaritans are coming (laughs) with the woman there and he says look the harvest is ripe it's white 
It's ready. So he's using it as an object lesson. But it's also true for us that we need to look. That's, that's the verb there. Look up and, and lift your eyes. Lift our eyes spiritually to, to, the, to what's going on around us and the spiritual needs that people have all around us. The harvest is white. It is ready to be harvested. As I close, 2013 is going to be a great year. The Holy Spirit is putting some great things together for us to reach the community and beyond. He's raising people up. He's, I mean, there's, there's things that are coming. And he wants us to be flexible with those things. And he wants us to be ready. Are you ready? Anyone here? Is it just me? Are you ready? Amen? Okay, because there's going to be opportunities coming. And it doesn't mean that everyone's called to every one of them. We know that. But, but God's expectation is that we would be sensitive to his spirit's leading for each one of us individually and, and take these things to prayer. None of us want any, any, none of the leaders want any of us to be engaged in things we're not called to do. But we can be called to a lot of things. And, and as we're busy about his business, the temporal things and things of this world and the cares of this world are supposed to shrink and shrink and shrink. And we're, the weights that so easily, you know, distract us and the sin that ensnares us, as we're told in Hebrews 12, start coming into play. And we need to, to streamline our lives and get ready because he's, he's going to put some things together that are pretty neat. And I'm really excited about it. But he wants us to be ready. He wants us to be willing. He wants us to be surrendered to what he has for us. And it's, it's all good stuff. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your seeking heart and your saving heart. Lord, we are so excited at what you're going to do among us, Lord, as long as we stay out of your way and we don't try to help you out. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit today? Fill us with, to overflowing, Lord. Empower us to be all that you've called us to be. There are so many gifts represented in this room, many of which have never been even explored or tapped into yet. And we know that. We pray that you'd help our church to be flexible and open and ready for anything that you want to do through our lives. Lord, not for our glory, but for your glory. We thank you that you're building your church. And we thank you that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We're going forward, Lord, with you because you're going forward. We thank you for this privilege. We pray that you would work in your people so that this can be accomplished by your grace and by your power. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.